This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for October 27th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on this week's show, staff writer Eric Stockstead is back to talk about why it might make sense to grow corn that isn't so tall. It turns out that towering corn, typically grown today, is more likely to blow over in strong winds and can't be planted very densely. Now seed makers are testing out new ways to make corn short through conventional breeding and transgenic techniques in the hopes of increasing yields. Next up on the show, the last in our series of books on sex and gender with books host Angela Saini. In this installment, Angela speaks with Ashma Dagra and Nandita Jayaraj about their book, Lab Hopping, A Journey to Find India's Women in Science. Every week I drive a few towns over going on back roads from Indiana to Ohio. And actually fall is the best time to do these drives. There's just tall, tall cornfields, both sides of the road, row and row and row of these straight tall stalks. Sometimes we'll see like a house or a barn just zip by with some trees, but mostly it's just corn. My daughter counts the silos as we pass. And last time she counted over 70 in the 35 minute drive we did. So as I was saying, lots of corn. And now staff writer Eric Stockstead, who specializes in this kind of thing, is here to tell us why this corn is too tall and how making it shorter might be a good idea. Hi, Eric. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi. For the record, I don't actually specialize in uh, keeping kids amused as we <laughs> as as you drive. Yeah, that's true. But what is wrong with all this corn? What is it? As high as an elephant's eye? Isn't that the ideal height for ripeness? What's wrong with that? I guess it depends on the size of your elephant. But <laughs> so what's wrong with tall corn, right? You'd think bigger is better, but bigger isn't always better when it comes to farming. So in the case of corn, it's about the wind that blows across the prairies and the plains out here. That's the problem. A tall plant is going to be more likely to get blown over by strong winds or gusts that happen during rainstorms when the soil's wet. 
And the problem with a plant that blows over is that it becomes harder to harvest when you're driving your combine through the field. So you want all the plants nice, straight, tall, with the ears of corn at the same height. If they get too low, your combine can't pick them up or you have to go more slowly. And of course, if it gets blown all the way over or if the stalk snaps, which can also happen, the plant can die or you can just lose that grain totally. How tall is tall corn? Well, if you're going for records, it can be three meters, nine feet. Yeah. So what is short corn then? Short corn is going to be about a third as tall. Okay, so that that does seem short. I mean, like elbow height? Elbow height. Yeah, I guess it depends on how high the elephant's elbow is. Is that the elephant elbow? When we talk about making corn shorter, is it easy to make this kind of plant shorter? I mean, you want just the stem to be smaller, right? Not the leaves or the kernels or the cobs. For a corn plant, you've got the top of the plant where you can see those tassels and you've got the height of the ear. Oh, yeah. For the height of the ear, that's important. You don't want the ear of corn to be too close to the ground or it gets harder to harvest. Now, when we were talking about the plant blowing over, if you've got a ear of corn that weighs a third of a pound or a half a pound higher up on the plant, it's going to add leverage to the whole plant that's swaying. So that's part of making this corn more robust in really severe winds is lowering not just the whole plant, but the ear as well. Is that something that they are breeding for by like finding low-eared corn? Yes, the breeding target is lower corn overall with the ear lower, but not too low. And there's also a transgenic approach that you talk about. What kind of mechanism are they targeting there to change the shape of this plant? In both cases, both of those approaches are targeting growth hormones so that the plant cells get different signals for how tall they should grow. So the transgenic approach is focusing on a different class of growth hormones. What's elegant about that approach is that you can target only the stalk, right? You can have the stalk grow less tall without affecting other parts of the plant that are growing and getting growth signals at the same time. The conventionally bred approach is using a mutation that affects the transport of another class of hormones called auxin through the stem. The plant is relatively shorter at the basal part of it. So it's you can think of it as kind of not growing as much towards the bottom of the stalk. That has an effect of bringing the, the ear of corn lower to the ground. Right. And are they testing this out in fields? Are they applying strong winds to the crops that they're planting? They always do this. They plant a test plot, various versions that they've come up with, and then they measure how the plants performed. And if you are lucky or unlucky enough to have your test plot hit by a windstorm, then you can see, you can compare the different varieties and see which ones are more resistant to being blown over. Another way is you can go out into the field with devices that push on the corn stalk and measure the forces so you can see how much the stalk will bend. There's a machine that one of the large companies uses that drives through the field with enormous fans and simulates these gusts, right, up to 100 miles an hour and measures how much that 
affects the corn plants, how much the corn plants get blown over by that. So these test plots, they've shown that shorter corn is more resistant to wind. Have they yielded any other results that this corn might be better for planting? The yield seems to be similar for the shorter corn. There's another advantage, which you might not think of off the top of uh, your head. It is how easy it is to manage this corn as it's growing, because you have to do things throughout the season. And if the corn is not as tall, you're able to drive your tractor into the field and apply these fertilizers or chemicals, pesticides, fungicides, particular to keep the leaves healthy. So that gives you more flexibility in terms of how you can take care of the, the crop later in the summer, right? As opposed to having to hire an airplane to, to spray fungicides on, on a plant if you've got a fungal infection in the field. So does that mean you can use less of those things, less fertilizer, less fungicide? Ideally, you would be able to apply less fertilizer, which would be good for the farmer because it's a lower expense. You've got less of the farm runoff either into the streams or soaking down into the groundwater where excess fertilizer can be a pollution problem. In terms of fungicides, it might cost you less to apply. You might be able to apply them at the right time because you can just take your tractor into the field. You don't have to call the company to schedule the pilot. Ideally, yes, you would be using less fungicides because, again, it's got adverse consequences for the environment. You also mentioned that you might be able to plant these more densely. Do you know why that's possible or what difference that would make? The idea is if you put, the idea is really pretty simple. If you put more plants into the field. Yes. So then you've got more corn plants growing in the same field and you're harvesting more ears of corn at the end. The growth of yield over the 20th century has been just extraordinary. And a lot of it has come from planting corn more densely, four times as many plants now typically as there were decades ago. So why not just plant even more? What is short being shorter have to do with the density? As some breeders have made plants shorter, they end up with leaves that are angled more upright. So this is very important because one of the limitations, you might think about fertilizer, right? Or water as a limitation for a plant, but sunlight can be a big limitation. If you're growing as a plant, you don't wanna be in the shade. So you want to make sure that one plant is not shading another plant too much. So if you breed a plant, corn plant, so that the leaves are angled more upright, then they are going to be less likely to be in the shade of their next door neighbor. So this is the phenomenon that's happened as the company that's really been working on this for the last decade. And their primary interest was in having plants more densely planted in the field. So they've ended up with plants that have more upright leaves in a denser planting situation. Mm -hmm. So they're shorter and they have upright leaves so they can be planted more closely and be less competitive on multiple fronts. That's the idea. You know, I have this burning question, Eric. Don't we do something with the stalks of corn? Doesn't that go somewhere into like some part of the economy, some part of, doesn't it get consumed by something? This was also something, I, you know, I confess that I wasn't clear in my mind because I don't spend as much time near corn as you do, <laughs> is that most modern hybrid corn has just one ear per plant. You think about that plant, right? Enormous plant, all those leaves, thick stalk, 
it's growing just one ear. Sweet corn is a shorter plant. It has more ears. But most field corn just has one ear per plant. So there's a lot of biomass there that is not going into the bushel. But it does have a use. You can grow what's called silage corn that's for feeding cattle. And in that case, you're using the whole plant. So if you think about corn that's being grown either for seed to plant, there you're only really interested in the kernels, or corn that's grown to turn into corn syrup, you've got a lot of the plant that's left on the field. That's called stover. Then you have to manage it because if you end up with too much of it, it can be hard to plant the next year because it just gets in the way of the planting machines. Ideally, that stover is going to be breaking down and returning to the soil, right? Refer our listeners to a previous episode where we talked about earthworms. Yes. Right? Sometimes there's more stover than the earthworms can handle. Yeah. So having a shorter plant can help because you've got less stover at the end of the year. Let's get back to, you know, there's these different approaches that we talked about for getting this shorter corn. Are we going to see either short corn show up on grocery shelves in the form of corn syrup or cereal products anytime soon? So the big companies in the U.S. that sell 70% of the corn seed in the U.S., one is planning to market this corn next year, conventionally bred. Well, as a footnote to that, conventionally bred. This trade of short is conventionally bred. Mm-hmm. But most corn grown in the United States is biotech, right? It's protected from soil insects, from leaf-munching insects by a natural insecticide called BT, and that gene is added in with biotech, right? Because that gene comes from an insect to make that insecticidal protein. Short stature is conventionally bred into the plant, but then these other traits that are useful for farmers are added in with biotechnology. So that's Bayer Crop Science is planning on marketing this next year. Bayer's released this conventionally bred trait in Mexico a couple of years ago, where they really have some wind problems in Sinaloa State. The other big seed company in the United States, Corteva, is in trials, and they're planning on releasing it in the next couple of years. I think this goes to the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is the machinery involved in farming is kind of tailored to the way corn is now to some extent. So how hard would it be for many, many farmers to switch over to shorter corn, maybe more densely packed corn? Would they have to change a lot about how their farm works? Right. It's not as simple as just putting more seeds in the ground. When you plant, you've got a rig on the back of your tractor and it's got these hoppers in it full of seeds and they are being drilled into the ground. So if you want more rows of corn, you have to have hoppers close together. You have to have all of these rows more tightly packed into the field. That's modifying your equipment or buying a new planting device. Yeah. So there is expense. There is expense involved. Not as simple as just saying you're going to do that. Well, I cannot imagine driving past one meter of corn (laughs) in the fall and being like, oh, it looks done. But it sounds like it could happen in the next decade. We might see that happening. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. Nice to talk with you again, Sarah. Eric Stockstead is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the last in our six-part series on books exploring the science of sex and gender. 
This month, host Angela Saini talks with journalists Ashima Dagra and Nandita Jayaraj about the experiences of women scientists in India. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. Hi there, I'm Angela Saini, journalist, author, and the host of this series of books podcasts in which I interview the authors of thought-provoking books that look at science's relationship with sex and gender. And this month, we're asking what challenges women and non-binary people continue to face in their careers as researchers. There's been a growing literature looking at this topic in Western countries, but much less in Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and South America. In their new book, Lab Hopping, A Journey to Find India's Women in Science, journalists Ashima Dogra and Nandita Jairaj start to fill that gap. Hopping from lab to lab between 2016 and 2022, they documented the stories of people passionate about science, but often struggling against discrimination, harassment, and the weight of social expectation. And in fact, I was personally so impressed that I ended up writing the foreword for this book. Ashma and Nandita, what were the circumstances that led you to write Lab Hopping? Hi, Angela. It's really nice to be here and uh, speak to you about this. So Lab Hopping is a book that is one of the many products of a project that Ashma and I started about seven years ago. It was called, it is called The Life of Science and it's a feminist science media platform which was themed on the journeys of women in India who are working in laboratories, working as lab leaders, sometimes working as technicians or operating telescopes and all kinds of STEM-related things. Over time, we soon realized that there were certain patterns and there were certain common experiences that many of these women were having. And at the same time, there were some extremely different kinds of experiences that different women were having. Yeah, and as you know, I also as science journalists, as a woman science journalist, you also, I'm sure, also have experienced some kind of silencing and sidelining that we were familiar with. But we wanted to get past that and like weave our own tapestry. As you both explain in the book, despite some very high profile successes like the Indian Space Program, which famously does have these very visible women researchers whose pictures everyone across the world has seen, India actually lags behind almost every Asian country 
in terms of the proportion of scientific researchers who are women. So it's around 15%, depending on which statistics you look at. What do you feel are the major factors behind that then? That's the really fascinating part about the Indian women in science story, because as you said, the numbers of women who are working in science are miserably low. It is 15% on average, but in the top institutes, it's often lesser than 10%. And it's usually the more under-resourced, the more overcrowded, less prestigious places where we find more people from the margins, which includes women. But the interesting part is India has one of the highest number of science PhDs in the world. Close to over 40%, I believe, of our science PhDs are women coming out every year. And it's been this way for at least 10 years, if I remember the statistics correctly. So in that way, India really is an outlier. And most of us grow up with girls in maths and science, and that was never considered an abnormal thing, or there would never be adults in our upbringing who tell us, you know, you're a girl, you can't be good at maths. So it isn't so much of that problem. Because there has been traditionally in the West, historically, this idea that women's intellectual capacity, especially in the 18th, 19th century, the, this idea that women aren't as smart as men, but that really isn't the case in India. I think that is also there because we've, we've heard this from students in the lab, for example. We've heard anecdotes like PhD students reporting to us that our lab leader has asked another lab leader, like if you have all women in the team, who does the computation and stuff like that. I think the mindset is still there, but we don't have like the pink and blue issue. In what ways are the problems that women scientists in India face different from those faced by women elsewhere in the world? Are there any particular pressures in India? In India, I think the family obligations, this is the most frequently talked about obstacle for women in science, which is, you know, women have this responsibility of taking care of the family, of having kids. And these are the kind of social things that set them apart. And it's true. It, it is the case uh, in India as it is in many other parts of the world. But I do feel that it is even more glorified in India. The duty of a mother, the duty of a wife is very much uh, glorified and the trope of the superwoman has really shot up in the past few years where sure you can be a professional you can be a very successful career woman as they call it but it has to be an addition to being a good wife and being a good mother and I think it's a little more so because of the informal support structures that exist in India so we have a lot more access to people who can come home and take care of the kids or, you know, joint families are still relatively common. So a lot of scientists we've spoken to had uh, the benefit of the grandmothers taking care of their kids and having a nanny is very affordable in India, which is, of course, it's a symptom of another problem where we have a lot of dignity of labor issues, but we have access to nannies. And so it's possible for women to do all these roles especially in an urban context when these informal support systems are in form of like domestic help. I think this is where also gender intersects with caste in India, and that is a specifically Indian problem. So we can see that while the upper caste woman can manage to somehow get in the lab, the lower caste woman doesn't have easy access into the lab as much and, you know, fills in for the care work. And this is something that you do explore in the book is that 
very often it's not just gender that's holding people back, that caste is a huge issue to such an extent that there will be entire institutions where the vast majority of people will be from the upper caste. Ashima, can you just quickly explain to those who aren't familiar, what does caste mean in India and why is it so important to understanding inequality in science there? So while I explain this, I have to say that I come from from a Brahmin background. So this is the upper caste, the uppermost caste. And uh, in India, families have been like historically, no matter what the religion, divided into different castes. There are some scriptures that dictate the rules, which have been, of course, rejected by the constitution and, of course, movements in India. According to these rules, social rules, that invisibly we still follow them, people and families are divided into different castes based on their ancestral work or ancestral duty. Priest's son becomes a priest and laborer's son becomes a laborer and somebody who does cleaning work of the cities and of households, of the temples, their families to come will continue to do that work. So there is very less scope of social mobility there. And this has such a huge effect on people that even when people from the lowest caste enter academic institutions or enter science labs, that they still face discrimination and abuse, sometimes so severe that there have been cases of suicide. Yeah, I think uh, specifically in science, because knowledge has been the forte of the upper caste writing scriptures and all of that also before colonization, the way our education system was arranged was also based on caste. And I believe from what research we've been able to do, from the interviews we've been able to do, I think these realities are still experienced in the labs based on the microaggressions that upper caste people continue to do. What we are hearing is also from the suicides that have been reported is there is this very high sense of isolation that people from the marginalized communities face. Because, of course, like we can also look at it from the lens of gender, the decision-making power or the administrative power is held still by the upper caste. I mean, it is heartbreaking to read in your book these kind of personal stories of just how severe that discrimination, that prejudice can still be among people and how much that really holds science back. I mean, it means that you're not tapping the talents of this huge proportion of people. And another part of Indian life that comes out very strongly, of course, is marriage. You describe very vividly the kind of workarounds that researchers sometimes have to resort to in order to have the careers that they want you know, depending on their social background, when that pressure of marriage arises, sometimes you've given accounts of people who just resist marriage altogether, who just say, I'm not doing it. Or sometimes partners who are both scientists (laughs) find each other in order to support and understand each other. Can you recount one or two of these personal stories? What we started noticing was, of course, there are a large number of women who are in scientist-scientist partnerships. I've read it is a global trend, but in India, there have also been some interesting studies that have showed that there are more women scientists in such relationships than there are male scientists, which seems to suggest that it's somehow more advantageous for women than it is for men. And we can't confirm why this is. It's not easy to imagine. It's probably because 
for a man, it doesn't really matter who he's married to. He can do what he wants and no, nobody's going to stop him. But it's not the same for women, especially Indian women who often need permission, need to be allowed to work after they marry by not just their husband, but also their families. And marrying somebody in their profession who understands the pressures, who understands the joys of science has been tremendously advantageous for uh, hundreds of women scientists who are working today. The other thing we also realized is that not often, I wouldn't say often, but in an interesting number of cases, marriage was also a way for women to do science. There's also cases where we spoke to uh, an astronomer, for example, who said that she had a really hard time traveling in the middle of the night, going to these really distant observatories and walking from the guest house to the telescope. And, you know, there were cases of molestation and kinds of uh, sexual harassment that she even had to face on the way. But she said one of the turning points for her was when she finally met her senior, who would soon to be her husband. And and that, you know, having that security just of somebody to walk with at night really boosted her career. So, I mean, it's not to say that, you know, a woman needs a man to save her. And we have received a little bit of pushback when we discussed this. But I mean, we also felt like these are realities and we should take these examples to sort of question what is the society we're living in that treats different genders so differently. One of the other complicated things about the book is that you mentioned that in many of the conversations you had, women didn't always want people to recognize their gender at work, to make an issue of it. Some told you, for instance, that science has no gender or that they don't consider themselves feminists. And of course, they're perfectly entitled to feel that way. Everyone has different political views on the world. But how did you interpret those kind of responses? Yeah, this happened a lot where when we went to interview a woman scientist, they said, could you please just call me a scientist and not a woman scientist? I think it mostly happened at the top levels. They're convinced that this boys club way is the only way to uh, go ahead and calling attention to your gender is not necessary. But I think it's also a strategy. I heard this, I think, quite brutal thing that is often said in science is, show me the baby, not the labor pains. Right. So if you kind of talk about your obstacle, your gender based realities, which are often complex, you're not rewarded for it. So I don't blame these women who have a lot to lose at the level that they're at, which is very hard earned. Do you feel hopeful then about the future of women and non-binary people in science? Yes, it might surprise listeners and readers that we actually do. <laughs> And I think most of our hope really comes from the people we've spoken to, the feminists that we have spoken to, who are, it might not be obvious if you're looking at the Indian science scene on Twitter, just on Twitter or something, but there are groups of women who are organizing, who are shaking their fists at the administration and working towards solutions. For example, Indian women physicists have been organizing for a large number of years consistently and doing their own counts, gender counts at different levels, organizing meetings. And I think the discourse has been gaining ground. And I think also now we're at this cultural moment where it's no longer okay for the boys club to kind of control the science narrative. I'm so glad that we can end on a note of optimism. <laughs> yeah. And it is an optimistic book because there's so much passion 
you can see in the researchers that you profile. Ashima Dogra and Nandita Jairaj, thank you so much. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. That was the last of this series with me as host. And the reason I say that is because next time the tables are going to be turned and I'll be the one interviewed by podcast host Sarah Crespi all about my latest book, The Patriarchs, which looks at the origins of gender inequality. Hope you can join us then. And that concludes this edition of The Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the apps, search for Science Magazine. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot join.